0: Welcome. This is Michael and You're listening to episode number 330 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Soyuz 11, Salyut 1. What's that smell? On June 5, 1971, the final crew for Soyuz 11 were introduced to the launch team at the traditional pre-flight meeting. Almost 3,000 people gathered at the base of the rocket, There were generals, officers, soldiers, technicians, engineers, politicians, designers, and even some people from the other launch pads. For the first time, there were many women present. Korolov had believed women on the launch pad was bad luck, but he was gone now. On this occasion, it appeared that everyone at Baikonur wanted to see the cosmonauts who were to lift off the next day for one of the most important missions in the history of cosmonautics. They formed a ring in front of the rocket with the cosmonauts in the center holding flowers. Visibly excited, Dabrowski said, While on my way here, I prepared a speech. Now seeing your smiles, I'll simply say, Dear comrades and friends, thank you very much for your effort. We will do everything that is necessary to complete our task. It was tradition for the prime and backup crews to take a brief walk in homage to their predecessors. But Leonov did not wish to participate, and therefore his crew remained in place. In fact, Leonov and Kubasov had not even wished to attend the ceremony. When General Kamanin had told them that they must do so, Kubasov replied, If I am healthy, then I must fly. If I am sick, I should not be there. When the ceremony was over, the journalist went to see the cosmonaut's room in the cosmonaut hotel. It was not very large, but contained three beds, chairs, and a table in the middle, draped with a white tablecloth. There were also three displays of flowers, which the cosmonauts had picked nearby to freshen up the room. There was a fridge with mineral water, but to despite the warm weather, the physicians had ordered the cosmonauts not to add ice to the water. The next day, launch day, when Dobrovsky, Volkov, and Patsayev were woken up at 3 a.m., it was still dark at the Baikonur Cosmodrome. They briefly exercised, shaved, had a light breakfast, their last meal on Earth and then the final medical checks. An hour later, after brief reports of the status of the rocket and the Soyuz 11 spacecraft, the State Commission gave the green light for the launch, and the rocket was fueled. In contrast to previous missions, there was no backup crew to ride with the crew to the pad. However, they were accompanied on the bus by the Soyuz 10 cosmonauts, and some of the officials from OKB-1 and the training facility. Just before 5 a.m., with dawn breaking, the bus reached the pad, where members of the state commission, designers, engineers, technicians, military officers, pad workers, TV crews, and reporters were waiting. The cosmonauts wore only gray cotton flight suits. After Dabrowski had made a brief report to General Karamoff, the chairman of the state commission, the cosmonauts, surrounded by journalists and the pad workers, walked to the rocket, which was lit by floodlights. This was different than the NASA way, whose astronauts donned their pressure suits in a building eight kilometers from the pad, and upon emerging, simply waved to their friends and reporters on their way to the van, which drove them to the pad. At Baikonur, the departing crew walks through the crowd, speaking to individuals, even joking. Dobrovsky, Volkov, and Patsayev halted in front of the stairs to the elevator, turned, and waved. Reading from a piece of paper, Dabrowski said, I bow my head to all of you for your attentiveness and for your effort. Then, as they smiled to numerous TV and photographic cameras, Volkov whispered to Dobrovsky "it's time to go" Volkov led the way up the steps with Patsayev and Dobrovsky following the liquid oxygen boiling off the rocket blew in small clouds past the cosmonauts at the top of the steps Dobrovsky turned and called to the crowd "don't worry everything will be normal everything will be normal" The three men paused at the door of the elevator to wave. Even Patsev smiled. Then they disappeared into the elevator. When they emerged on the platform leading to the hatch in the side of the orbital module of their spacecraft, they posed for one of the photographers, which is another notable detail of this mission because cosmonauts did not generally pose on this platform. The result was one of the most extraordinary photographs taken of this crew. As a final farewell, the three men stood at the railing of the platform and waved their caps at the crowd. Technicians assisted, first Volkov, then Patsayev, and finally Dobrovsky to enter the spacecraft. Access was through the side hatch of the orbital module, then down through the interior hatch into the descent module, which contained their couches. When Volkov had taken his place, he switched on the cabin lights and ventilators. Once Patseev was in place, Dobrovsky joined them. The technicians bid them farewell and hermetically closed the hatch between the descent and orbital modules, then the external hatch of the orbital module. With the cabin sealed, the silence was striking. Each cosmonaut donned a cap of white net, which included earphones and a small microphone on each side. There was still an hour remaining to the time of launch. As they settled in, Volkov turned to Dubrovsky and they smiled at each other. And Volkov pointed toward Patsayev, who was quietly gazing out of the small porthole by his left shoulder. Finally, Pashchev turned his head inwards to his colleagues and smiled once again. With 30 minutes to go, the twin sections of the service structure split the eight levels of the wraparound walkway and swung down to leave the rocket exposed on the pad. Ten minutes later, the topping off of the liquid oxygen tanks ceased and the kerosene tanks were pressurized. The control room was in a bunker, two kilometers from the pad. A black-and-white TV monitor showed the cabin. But because the camera was located above Volkov's head, only Dobrovsky and Patsayev were visible. The communications officer was Leonov. Also present was Afanashev of the Ministry of General Machine Building, who had just arrived from Moscow. The traditional radio call sign for the flight control center was Zarya. The call sign for the mission was Yantar. At 7.40 a.m., Dobrovsky reported, This is Yantar, and we're ready to go up. With just 40 seconds remaining, the rocket was switched to internal power, and its automatic sequencer was activated. Twenty seconds later, the umbilical arm swung away. The cosmonauts could hear the final commands. They tightened their seat belts. The fuel tower withdrew from the vehicle. Volkov, the only veteran who knew the launch commands very well, again joked, Let us wave farewell to them. They waved to the TV camera. Then the launch operator announced, The key is on the start button. A second later, he repeated this command. Then he gave the final commands ignition, the main, start. The launch vehicle had a central core stage and four strap on boosters, each with a main engine. A turbopump in each of the five segments began to feed fuel and oxidizer. At 7.55 a.m., pyrotechnic charges were simultaneously fired to start the five main engines. The rocket was not actually supported at its base. The core was held by four arms located just above the top of the strap-ons. As soon as the thrust overcame its 310-ton mass, the rocket began to lift. This released the supporting arms which immediately swung out like the petals of a flower in order to clear the way for the protruding strap-ons. Soyuz 11 was now committed. The launch was perfect. Dobrovsky reported that there was very little vibration. After initially rising vertically, the rocket pitched over to a northeasterly heading, and as it ascended through the atmosphere, it passed almost directly over the town of Baikonur, some 350 kilometers from the launch site. At 115 seconds, at an altitude of almost 45 kilometers, the ring of solid rockets at the top of the 6-meter-tall escape tower were fired to pull it free of the vehicle. A few seconds later, the 420 20-meter-long strap-ons shut down and were jettisoned. The core continued, and with half of its propellant used, it accelerated rapidly. At an altitude of 80 kilometers, above most of the atmosphere, The shroud which had protected the spacecraft from aerodynamic loads was jettisoned. At 288 seconds, at an altitude of 175 kilometers, the 30-meter-long core shut down and was jettisoned. The four-chambered engine of the 8-meter-long third stage started immediately, and by the time that it had built up to its full 35-ton thrust, the framework interstage had been jettisoned too. Soon, the third stage began to pitch over further in order to increase its horizontal speed. At 8.04 a.m., Dabrowski reported, orbital insertion, commencing separation, antenna and solar wings deployed. On board, everything is in order, feeling normal. Once they had settled down in orbit, Dabrowski wrote in his diary. On board the ship, everything is all right. After separation from the rocket, we all had an unpleasant feeling. But we feel better now. It was just as if someone was trying to pull our heads off. On the second orbit, it was time to unfasten their belts and enter the orbital module. Volkov, the flight engineer, was the first to leave his couch. He opened the hatch and like a fish, floated through. The orbital module was more spacious, and the rookie cosmonauts delighted in floating in weightlessness. After the initial novelty wore off, the three men went to the portholes to observe the Earth. It was a beautiful sight. They were flying over the Pacific Ocean, and the sun was reflecting off the surface of the water. Directly below, the color of the ocean was deep blue, Dabrowski said, The sea is always beautiful, even from space, and we can't live without it. For him, the first moments in orbit were a flashback to his childhood on the coast of the Black Sea. Then the cosmonauts returned to the descent module and Dabrowski reoriented the spacecraft to enable the sun to fully illuminate the solar panels. On the fourth orbit at 1.50 p.m., Soyuz 11 successfully made its first maneuver to start the rendezvous with Salyut 1. Then control was transferred from Baikonur to the flight control center in Yevpatoria. Back on Earth, since the mission began on a Sunday morning, the families of the crew were at home. Marina Dobrovsky said that her father was often away from home and she never knew where he went. This is how she remembers hearing that he had been launched into space.
1: Of course, I was happy for my father. However, I wanted so much that he should return as soon as possible. We were given a brief note that he'd written to Mom, my sister, and I, in which he said that we shouldn't worry and that everything would be good.
0: Svetlana Patsayev was attending a young pioneer's camp, and the news was not entirely unexpected.
1: I felt that father had some important and very serious work. For me, he was the great authority, and I was really not surprised that he was flying in space.
0: Victor's mother, Maria, and stepfather, Ivan, were not even aware that Victor could have a mission. Maria was in the kitchen, and Ivan was fishing when the national radio announced the news. In accordance with the Program of Near Space Exploration, at 7.55 a.m. Moscow time on June 6, 1971, the Soviet Union launched the spacecraft Soyuz 11. The crew is Commander Lieutenant Colonel Yorgi Dobrovsky, Flight Engineer, Hero of the Soviet Union, Vladislav Volkov, and Research Engineer Viktor Patsayev. When she heard the name of her son, Maria Patsayev exclaimed so loudly that a neighbor rushed in to see if anything was amiss. When Maria explained the news about her son, both of them cried. Others soon arrived and the celebrations began. Someone placed a table against the front wall of the house bearing a notice stating that in this house lived the parents of cosmonaut Victor Patsayev. After confirming that there were no problems with Soyuz 11 or Salyut 1, Kamanin, Shatilov, the OKB-1 team, including Mission, Chertok, Shabarov, Fyoktistov, and Yelizhev, and some members of the state commission left for Yevpatoria. Already at the flight control center were cosmonauts Nikolaev, Gorbatko, and Bykovsky, who had been assigned by Kamanin to talk to the crew. The Chief Operative and Control Group, also known as go for the Soyuz 11 mission, had five members. General Agadzinov was in charge. Trey Grubb was the technical supervisor, and he was responsible for analyzing the signals from space and preparing the commands to be transmitted to the two spacecraft. Boris Chertok and Rauschenbach also served on GOGU as experts in the spacecraft's guidance, control, and electrical systems. When the specialists from Baikonur arrived at the flight control center, Agadzinov and Treykorov confirmed that everything was normal on both Soyuz 11 and Salyut 1, and everything was going as planned. Based on the biomedical telemetry and the reports from the cosmonauts, Volkoff was in the best condition. His body obviously remembered the weightlessness of his five-day flight in 1969. One of the major tasks for the crew on the first flight day was to familiarize themselves with being weightless. They also monitored their vehicle's systems and performed the preliminary preparations for the rendezvous and docking with the Salyut. Then it was time to rest. This phase of the mission was timed to coincide with the period in which Soyuz 11 remained out of contact with the Soviet communication stations for a prolonged period, 3.40 p.m. through 1.30 a.m. The cosmonauts resumed work the next day, June 7th, at 2.48 a.m. At 6 a.m., as Soyuz 11 made its approach to Salyut 1, the main control room on the second floor of the Flight Control Center building was packed. Although flight control required only the members of the GOGU, five specialists for data analysis, command measurement, communications, telemetry, and medical support, nearly 100 people were jammed into that room. Many of them were not directly involved in mission control, but had been drawn by the significance of the upcoming event. The communication session was to start at 7.25 a.m. and last for 23 minutes. As the time for contact approached, there was significant increase in tension. After two maneuvers, Soyuz 11 was known to be in the ideal orbit to achieve the rendezvous with the Salyut. When the range was 7 kilometers, the IGLA automatic system was to establish radio contact with the station a milestone known to the cosmonauts as Radio Capture. At 7.26 a.m., Yeliseyev called the crew. Here is Zarya. Yantar, how do you read us? This is Yantar, came the immediate reply. Everything is going according to program. Radio Capture passed. The automatic approach is progressing. At 727, we are a distance of 4, speed 14. The distance was given in kilometers and the speed in meters per second. Understood, replied Yeliseyev. Everything is normal, continued the report. At 731, the correction engines fired for 10 seconds. Distance was 2.3 kilometers, speed was 8 meters per second. Volkov was making the reports. The stress was evident in his voice. Speed is decreasing. I can see a bright point in the VSK, distance 1400, speed 4. The VSK was the forward-looking periscope, and Salyut could now be seen in it as a bright point of light. The distance was now being reported in meters. Volkov continued, At 737, distance 700, speed 2.5. We have turned. I can see Earth again. There is radio capture. Capture. When the radio fell silent, some of the members of the State Commission turned toward the Gogu people in expectation. The tracking station, number 13, still had the spacecraft's signal, but it was only static. Yelejev called nervously. Yantar. This is Zarya. I do not hear you. At first, there was continued radio static, but then Volkov could be heard. Distance 300, speed 2. I can see the station excellently in the VSK. Roll alignment starts. The docking cone is very clearly visible. Roll alignment ended. Distance 105, speed 0.7. Manual control activated. Now that the Igla had brought the spacecraft almost to a halt 100 meters from the station, Dabrowski had taken control for the final approach. Meanwhile, the station had oriented itself to face its front end toward the Soyuz. Yeliseyev called, Yantars, when you close in, inspect the docking mechanism. He wanted the crew to look for any damage caused during Soyuz 10's unsuccessful attempt to dock. Yes, understood. Distance 50, speed 0.28. The DPO is firing. By DPO, he meant the orientation engines. The cone is clean. It is clearly visible. Distance 20, speed 0.2. The ship is stable. We're going to dock. A few seconds later, the spacecraft passed out of range of the tracking station and headed across the Pacific Ocean. The next communication session would begin at 8.56 a.m. If all went well, the docking would be achieved on the station's 795th orbit and on the 16th orbit of the Soyuz 11 spacecraft. Leaving only those responsible for the analysis of telemetric data in the control room, the visitors left the building to attempt to relax after the almost unbearable tension. Just as in the case of Soyuz 10, when Soyuz 11 had flown out of radio range, it was only a few meters from the station, with everything progressing smoothly. But, everyone remembered what had happened on Soyuz 10. As the time for the next communication session neared, everyone crowded back into the control room to hear from the cosmonauts whether the docking had been successful. Yelejyev began to call just before the communication session was due. Yantar, here is Zarya. But only silence. He repeated his call several times. Suddenly, the operator responsible for receiving TV signals excitedly announced, There is television. Docking achieved. The picture is outstanding. Yelejyev continued his calls. Yantars, I'm calling you for the fifth time. Why do you remain silent? Zaria, we report there were no oscillations during the docking. The program is complete. We will check the hermetic seal and equalize the pressure according to the plan. We have opened the hatch between the descent and orbital modules and moved into the orbital module. Everything is normal. The control room was instantaneously abuzz and someone started to applaud. But a told them not to celebrate until the cosmonauts had entered the station. There were still many things to check. The hermetic seal of the docking mechanism had to be verified. The tunnel pressurized and the hatches opened. Finally, there was the question of the station's atmosphere. Had the problem with the ventilator fans during Salyut's first few days in space allowed the air to become toxic? But before we get to that, This is how Dabrowski described the moments just after communication was lost. At 100 meters, we switched to the manual regime. Speed, 0.9 meters per second. After switching, the station began to move to the right in the periscope. I began to decrease this lateral speed. I had the feeling that the left controller was insufficient, so I switched to the right one and slightly raised the ship. And then, with the left controller, I succeeded in reducing the lateral speed. At 60 meters, I reduced the speed to 0.3 meters per second. Mechanical contact was at 7.49 and 15 seconds. We were stable. The docking occurred at 7.55 and 30 seconds. There were no vibrations or shaking. We almost did not feel the contact. Moving on. During the next orbit, Volkov established communications before Yelizhev could call. Zarya, everything is normal. We are still in the ship. All pressures are within the limits specified by the table. We do not have any remarks. Permission to open the hatch? Yelizhev looked at Treygrub, who nodded his head. Open the hatch. Zarya, At 10.32, we sent the command to open the hatch. The signal closed light remained. If it does not open, we will use the crowbar. Gantars, all goes excellently. Well done. Don't be disturbed. Work calmly. Zaria, the opening procedure is executed, but the indicator did not light. Evidently, it did not reach the terminal. However, Yantar 3 has opened it and is about to pass through. At 10.45 a.m. on June 7th, 26 hours 50 minutes into the flight of Soyuz 11, Viktor Patsayev entered the world's first space station. Yelizhev replied, Yantars, attention! The first will talk with you. The first Yelizhev was speaking about was Leonid Brezhnev the first secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, was on the telephone line to Yevpatoria. Some people in the control room were surprised that he wished to congratulate the crew so early on, with only one man in the station. The cosmonauts were also surprised. Volkov radioed, Zarya, wait, Yantar 3 is in the Soyuz. Don't start until Yantar 3 has returned to the Salyut. There is a strong smell in the Salyut. He will put on a mask and go in again. Realizing that this was an inopportune moment for Brezhnev to make his speech, Minister Afanashev called the Kremlin and deferred the relay with the station to the next orbit. Chief Designer Mission was nervous. He exclaimed loudly, All conversations and commands to space must go through me. Then the radioed. When we opened the hatch, we peered through. The station is huge. There seems to be no end to it after our compact spaces. Yeliseyev replied, Yantars, activate the air regenerators. Communications is ending. We'll pick you up on the next orbit. We are all happy as you are. Congratulations. The 25-ton orbital complex comprising of Salyut 1 and Soyuz 11 left the communication zone. The TV, which had been recorded from space by Evatoria, was sent to the Kremlin, but was not yet released to the national television network. In the meantime, Mission asked the doctors to investigate whether the strong smell, which had been reported, posed a risk to the cosmonaut's health, but the doctors had no idea what the source of this mail was and therefore were unable to offer any advice. Before the opening call of the ensuing communication session could be made, the black and white screen of the control room came to life and showed Patsayev and Volkov inside the station. When the cosmonauts heard the sound of the controllers celebrating, they looked towards the camera and waved. Yelizhev radioed, Yantars, this is Zarya. The State Commission and Operative Group congratulate you most sincerely. You are the very first crew on the Salyut. We suggest that you take a meal, get some rest, and tomorrow morning we will start the program. The only remaining problem was the smell, and Patsev had activated a system that would cleanse the air. It seems that soon after launch of the Salyut on April 19th, six of the eight ventilator fans failed, and during the time that the station had been unmanned, the air had grown stale, with the smell of the burnt insulation on two of the fans. Initially, Mission had blamed Leonov's painting tools, but Dabrowski said the brushes and paints were safe in their box. Patsayev found small tracers used by technicians to identify the airflow during pre-launch preparations, which could have been the problem. After restoring all eight fans to service, Patsayev and Volkov rejoined Dabrowski to sleep in their own spacecraft while the regenerators cleansed the air in the station. While the station was flying outside of the communications zone, the control room was empty. In the evening, the State Commission met and decided that if everything went according to the plan, the crew would return to Earth on June thirtieth, the maximum duration allowing daylight landing. If successful, this would exceed by five days the record set by Soyuz 9. At the same time, at Baikonur, the final preparations for the third launch of the N-1 lunar rocket were in progress, and this now became Mission's focus. He recalled three of the GOGU members, Tregrub, Chertok, and Roshenbach, to Moscow with him, leaving Yelejev to lead the specialist in managing the Salyut mission, supported by Nikolaev, Gorbatko, and Baikovsky. Generals Kamanin and Shatilov and the other Air Force staff also returned to Moscow. Kamanin's aide, General Lad, was at Baikonur to manage the landing and recovery operation. On awakening from their rest, Dabrowski, Volkov, and Patsayev all entered the Salyut. Marina Dabrowski recalls of these days.
1: People were coming and going all the time. The telephone rang. Congratulatory telegrams arrived. The docking was especially important. I remember the flight controllers congratulated Mother, saying that the docking was performed excellently.
0: At last, Salyut 1 had begun operations. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 330 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled, Soyuz 11, Salute 1. What's that smell? Hope (laughs) Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. Our next episode will be released on January 30th. First of all, I want to extend my heartfelt sympathy to all my Australian listeners who are going through a very tough time now with those wildfires. I want to encourage all my listeners to support the efforts down there by making a donation to the Australian Red Cross. They can be found at www.redcross.org.au. The website is very easy to use. Just click on the red donate button. If you were considering sending in a donation to my podcast, I would rather you send it to them instead. Okay, if you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 160 are available on the archive. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. Should be available on all podcatchers have a few announcements. I'm very excited to be completing seven years with the podcast. Now, that's a pretty long time in the life of a podcast. So the anniversary date is going to be February 13th. That's when I started back in 2013. I brought back the off-topic segment last week towards the end of the podcast. Those of you who stuck around to the end... Now know my ancestors and genetic makeup. (laughs) If that is interesting to you, (laughs) I can't imagine why it would be, but if it is, check out that on the previous episode. We will be doing some more off topic in the future, so stick around to the end if you can. For quite some time now, we have had some very generous donors who have given significantly beyond the Orion level. And I think it's time that they be recognized. So, for this year, I have decided to create a new super high level set at $250 or more for a one-time donation or $25 monthly on Patreon. I've already received some suggestions on to what the name of that level should be, such as the NASA level or... The Artemis level, or the Mars level, or perhaps the Nova level. If you have an opinion on this, shoot me an email, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and let me know what you think. Try to do that very quickly so I can pick out a name and have it done by next episode. Okay, I have a few afterthoughts on this episode First of all, why do you suppose Korolov believed women on the launch pad was bad luck? I mean, he launched Tereshkova. What was that nonsense all about? I just do not get that crazy bad luck superstition. I think this was the most detailed episode covering a Soviet launch that I have done. I really enjoyed putting in all those details because to me it was fascinating how different it was than how NASA did things. The crowd at the launch pad very near the rocket just a short time before launch. The cosmonauts walking among them, shaking hands. And of particular note, the cosmonauts were only wearing cotton flight suits instead of pressure suits. Why was this? Because three cosmonauts would not fit in the descent module wearing pressure suits. Why do they have to send three? Because Apollo had three astronauts. I also found it interesting how the families found out their loved ones were in space. Their reaction of shock and surprise. Why was there so much secrecy? I think because the Soviets could not risk public knowledge of failure, especially after the success of the Apollo moon landings. Of course, all this is my opinion, and your mileage may vary. Moving on, I want to thank all the Patreon donors that have continued their support from last year. Now, we believe that your name with your new longevity emoji Is now listed correctly on the current donors page. But if you could, please go check that out to make sure we've got everyone at the correct level with the correct longevity emoji. And if we don't, just shoot me an email and we will fix it. Since the last episode, we had several new contributions and increases. I would like to recognize Jim M. from Tennessee who donated above and beyond the Orion level and earned a moon emoji. Now, Jim will be the first on the new super high level just as soon as we figure out a good name for it. Mark, you donated at the Orion level and earned a satellite emoji. Ben K. from California donated at the shuttle level and earned a moon emoji. Wayne and Naomi H., from Washington, donated at the Apollo level and earned an alien emoji. Stephen S. from Germany, donated at the Apollo level and earned a galaxy emoji. Gary A. donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Justin B. donated at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. Darrell M. donated at the Gemini level and earned a moon emoji. Matthew F., From Oakland, Tennessee, donated at the Soyuz level and earned a moon emoji. Robert N. donated at the Mercury level and earned a satellite emoji. Judith J. donated at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. Felix K. from Germany donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Neville G. from Australia donated at the Vostok level and earned a shooting star emoji. Alexander S. donated at the Vostok level. Robert W. from Pennsylvania, donated at the Vostok level and earned a moon emoji. Killian M. from Germany, donated at the Vostok level and earned a satellite emoji. Marcus S. from Germany, donated at the Sputnik level and earned a satellite emoji. Michael M. from Australia, donated at the Sputnik level and earned a rocket emoji. John E. from California donated at the Sputnik level and earned a rocket emoji. Greg R. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level and earned a satellite emoji. Rich pledged on Patreon at the Gemini level. Lincoln J. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Soyuz level and earned a satellite emoji. And Curtis P. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Our total Patreon donors have reached 244. That is down one since the beginning of the year. Our goal is to reach 300. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 269, with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway.
1: Hey, everyone. Hope you're having a good new year. Ours has been really busy. It's nice to take a break and share our winter with you. The winner will get a choice of a Space Rocket History magnet, two coasters, or two stickers. So, with the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Chris Hunter. Chris Hunter, if you will email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your preference, we'll get this out to you. Thanks so much to all 269 of you who've contributed thus far in 2020.
0: My sources for this episode were Rockets and People by Boris Chertok, Salyut the First Space Station by G. Ivanovich, Soviet Space Program Website, Russia Space Web, Astronics Website, NASA Space Science Data Coordinated Archive, Space Facts Website, and Wikipedia. This is the end of content for this episode. You are welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. I'll try to have episode 331 posted by Thursday, January 30th. Thanks for sticking around, folks. thought we'd do a few podcast statistics since we haven't done that since. I really don't remember the last time we've done that. So these are the statistics for the year 2019. This is for the whole year. Looks like uh, the podcast was heard in 164 countries. Here are the top ten. Number one, United States. Number two, UK. Number three, Australia. Number four, Germany. Number five, Canada. Number six, Sweden. Number seven, New Zealand. Number eight, Ireland. And number nine, Netherlands. Number ten, France. And that is the top ten for last year. Number 11 is Denmark. Norway is 12. Spain is 13. Austria is 14. Belgium is 15. South Africa is 16. Switzerland is 17. Italy is 18. 19 is India. And rounding out the top 20 is Finland at number 20. Now, I took a look at the United States. And I went to each state and we have statistics there and the number one state for the most listens in 2019 was California, followed by two is Texas, three is Florida, four is New York, five, Washington, six, Illinois, seven, Colorado, eight, Georgia, Georgia, 9, Ohio, and 10 is Virginia. Michigan is 11. Pennsylvania is 12. Massachusetts is 13. North Carolina came in at 14. New Jersey, 15. Maryland, 16. Minnesota, 17. Oregon, 18. Arizona, 19. And Indiana, 20. Okay, just some statistics that I thought you might be interested in. Oh, also I do want to mention that January 18th is SpaceX's scheduled date for the capsule abort test. So my fingers are crossed. I really hope this thing works correctly. It's the last major milestone to launching humans into space from the United States. And boy, has it been a long time since we've done that. So I am rooting for you 100% SpaceX. Get this thing done. we We need to go back. Okay, that's all I have for this week, folks. We will talk to you again on January 30th. So long for now.